Hello and welcome to Liquid History. My name is Leo Cardoza. I am your host. This is the show where I use stories from history to get as an excuse to get wine drunk. Uh, this is part two. Uh, I had to awkwardly cut this into two pieces because our recording ended up being super long. So if you've not listened to part one of this story about uh, the presidency and subsequent death of Salvador Allende, I would suggest that you go back and listen to the first part because the second part without the first part will be confusing and weird. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. And now on with the show. Not that I'm trying to promote violence. No, me neither. But in this particular case, <laughs> it does seem like Allende's resistance to violence kind of bit him in the ass. Yeah. Or bit him in the skull with his own AK-47. Uh, spoilers, again. Uh, so, Davis contrasts two different speeches given by Allende. Uh, one given by Allende in May of 1971, uh, where he basically lays out the democratic, non-violent, non-revolutionary road that he calls the, the Via Chileno. Um, and Castro's speech at the end of his visit at the end of 1971, uh, where Castro basically berates the entire nation of Chile for not being more radical. He talks about the fact that he's been pro, he complains about the fact that he's been protested uh, during his visit, which snowflake, uh, and <laughs> says that he returns to Havana even more hardened, radical, and revolutionary. Um, so at this point, like I said, uh, it, it ver- this is kind of the point in, in reading that it really started to seem like Ayande was was fucked. It was it's really a uh, damned if you're doomed, damned if you don't situation. Um, so you know he are obviously already has the 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 full committed hatred of capitalism and the United States aimed at him, and there's this slowly bubbling uh, revolutionary left um, kind of thing that's that's starting to resent him for not being revolutionary enough and even though the major arc the kind of general consensus within the military had been to adhere to the schneider doctrine after schneider was assassinated there are still revolutionary elements uh within the the uh, the military who are totally down with seizing power you're saying he's failing to resolve the contradictions with yeah. social democracy? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, he's not getting there. Interesting. Yeah. Um, probably not a lesson anybody else needs to learn, though. No, probably not. Okay. But speaking of protests in the military, uh, because somebody's about to come into the story. <laughs> so during Castro's visits, uh, like I said, there were several protests. One occurred the day before he, le- he left uh, called the March of the Empty Pots. Um, which was ostensibly a protest against food rationing and food scarcity. But there is some question of the validity validity of it and whether or not it was either entirely or at least partially astroturfed um, because the people who took part in the, uh, in, in this protest were middle and upper class women who would not have been hit by food scarcity. So there was some, some food insecurity at this point. That is true, but the majority of people who were taking part in this protest were not the people who have been a, would have been affected by that fact. So it wasn't the lower class that was protesting. It was like middle and upper middle class no. uh, women, housewives who were who were out in the street protesting. Um, but so that protest happens. Uh, the, like I said, the day before uh, Castro was supposed to leave. Uh, things get heated. The marchers start clashing with uh, with police and uh, the um, the Christian Democrats and leftists. There are there starts to be violence in the street. Uh, Allende eventually declares a state of emergency, brings in the head of the Santiago uh, garrison from the military, one Mister Augusto Pinochet Ugarte. So. Uh, never P- heard of him. Nope, never heard of him. So Pinochet puts uh, d- declares uh, a curfew on December second, the day Castro's leaving. Um, it was all very dramatic. There was tear gas, um, and Davis marks this as the as a change in the t- the tone and the level of protests in Chile. Yeah. Um, just with the level of military involvement, the amount of violence, the amount of damage. Um, 
that it was this was more than than political protests had been in at least in recent memory. Um, so a big part of went, what went wrong with uh, Allende's party's push towards socialization um, uh, affected. It seems like it kind of came into play in a lot of like uh, socialist and communist uh, countries in the 20th century where they would take over stuff, but they didn't manage to keep people who knew how those interest industries worked working in those industries once they were controlled by the government. So they had some government guy who very, you know, depending on where you are and what the situation is, varying levels of, of nepotism involved, um, you know, but even under the best situation, the best case scenario, some guy who just joined the government to be a part of the government and doesn't know anything about how like buses work or trucking or whatever uh, is not going to be very good at, uh, at being in charge of that, that industry. Um, so there, this guy, uh, Pedro Vuskovic, who was the minister of the economy, was dedicated, dedicated to eradicating imperialism through state control. But what ended up happening was they would take over enterprise, not have anybody who knew how that shit actually worked. Uh, and then the and things would just start working very poorly and failing and falling apart. Right. Um and as as we get into 1972, so they had been basically, and Chile has a fiat currency at this point, so it's not tied to any kind of gold standard or anything like that. It's just this is how much, this is how much that's worth. Yeah, this um, is how we negotiate the cost signal. Yeah, yeah. So and and again, the the uh, the rates of inflation were not unique to Allende's government. Like during there were radical inflation and deflation radical swings in the value of the currency during uh Frey and uh, Alessandri's presidencies so not unique to Allende. It was also a global problem at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um so that being said it's that's what's going on on in 1972 so they've been basically uh debt spending or deficit spending to uh to build what they you know what what they're trying to build and the kind of uh the the chickens start to come home to roost uh as we get into to 1972 um so the u.s uh, obviously is looking at the um at allende's party as dangerous because they thought they were uh too far left but uh again much farther left organizations with the country within the country are also working against them for not being too far left enough uh, hardline communists saw the UP as complacent and corrupt, and um, it, the, the whole thing is it's it's very confusing because there's like there are people within Allende's government who are more radical than he than his kind of general centerline policy, but then there are also like multiple both political and full blown paramilitary uh, groups on the left and the right. Uh, so it's all it's it's a right. fucking mess so uh and there's i I imagine that like for as much ideology as there is in there there's also probably a lot of just naked opportunism oh yeah with people that are like yeah i believe something that'll get me in charge yeah whatever that is yeah i believe in whatever i'm the boss of yeah can i be the boss yeah do i get which i'm guessing i'm foreshadowing where this goes do i get to have guns (laughs) yeah um so towards the end of 1972, uh, a series of strikes starts, uh, and that's basically Allende doesn't die for another year, but the, this is basically the beginning of the end. Yeah. Um, so again, a mix of genuine strikes by people who are in industries that are being affected by nationalization, uh, and some astroturfing that's being paid for by the CIA and uh, organized by uh, opposition political groups within uh, within Chile. Um, but end result is that Allende was he ends up bringing up bringing several members of the military into his cabinet, which, again, it was, you know, we had the whole Schneider doctor, doctrine, right. military non-involvement. And the military did it with, at that time with the understanding that, like, OK, we're coming in to help solve this problem, to, you know, to, to quell the, the, the strikes and, you know, bring peace back. Um, but as soon as this is figured out, like we're out. Um, one of the guys that joins at this point and the highest ranking uh, military leader and becomes the de facto vice president because they didn't have an actual vice president um, but it was the the uh, whoever had the highest ranking uh, cabinet position yeah the top minister yeah 
um, that happened to be. Yeah. So this dude, Carlos Prats. So, uh, and he was uh, generally seen as a level-headed guy. He was a big proponent of the Schneider Doctrine, um, which is a big part of the reason that, that Allende was comfortable working with the military, working with him, and having them involved in the government because he didn't uh, at all think, and he was right, Prats did not have any desire to to be involved in a, in, in a coup, to take power, or anything like that. Like, he just wanted to be the military, you know, be good soldiers, protect the country, uh, and, and all that. So, um, and he... Uh, but like one of the things that Iandi does, I think I, I think I texted you when I read this part of the book. Uh, he effectively he strengthens the relative power of the military by restricting civilian access to firearms. He disarmed the proletariat. Never disarm the proletariat, Salvador. Not if you're on the left wing, anyway. Come on, Sal. Sal you might need them for things yeah and it's really <laughs> weird when he does need them too which is coming up so um yeah so he reserves most high power high capacity weapons for military use outlaws militias uh and gives the military the authority to search and seize prohibited weapons um and that yeah that's why you don't that's what happens when you disarm the proletariat um so pratt's takes up the negotiations with the strikers on behalf of the government and he calms things down and he manages to get things to return back to normal for a while. So the strikes again are end of 1972 into the beginning of 1973. So 1973 begins and everything's calmed down. The strikes have, have been quelled. And by like March, April, everything's been calm enough, long enough that uh, most of the guys in the uh, in the, there's a there's an election in March 1973. And um the the tent the like things were calmer but there was still a lot of a lot of political tension and the election didn't give either of the two uh biggest the 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 up or the christian democrats uh, a big enough majority for them to really like you know take control and be like all right you kids and blah, 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 whatever right. um so it was still like kind of they were they were still at at an impasse um, and there were just everybody was so wound up that cooperation compromise not just not on the table not happen. yeah uh, but the elections were smooth you know um, for uh, despite not giving anybody the result they really wanted um, and so once the elections had been executed and and everybody was like okay nobody's gonna murder everybody over these elections the guys in the military who had, had been uh in in parliament or in the cabinet were like all right you got this we're gonna go back to being you know non-interventionary military dudes just running around in the mountains or whatever whatever the army does when they're not, <laughs> not um, shooting people right, except for assuming right assume it's running around the mountains that yeah. sounds nice actually. Um, so everybody takes off except for pratt's pratt stays on as interior minister um which is a good thing because again he he genuinely did not and there's no twist coming up here or anything like pratt's didn't want to be a revolutionary he didn't want to uh, overthrow the government uh he genuinely believed in the schneider doctrine and, he was a liberal basically yeah, yeah i mean he just yeah he, he just wanted to have an army and protect the country yeah. and let politicians be politicians and let military be and military. let things be nice yeah yeah um but it didn't work out oh spoilers um so mid-april there was uh another set of strikes at the copper mines so the the previous ones have been in in the end of 1972 had been tr um, trucking strikes um April 1973, copper strikes start. Um, and again, Allende makes a mistake dealing with this because he makes a public statement about it and he makes reference to the power of the people um, and makes comments about like forces conspiring against him and against his government, but also like rides the other side of the fence and says stuff about like not being violent, not taking up violent revolutionary action. So he's just he, he's not getting people ready to fight for him. Um, he's just trying to like make them believe in themselves or something. Yeah. I don't, yeah. It's, it's uh, oof. yeah. You hate to see it. And like I said, there were uh, this whole time some people within the military who were in favor of some sort of a coup when Allende was first elected and probably well before that. 
Um, and it's not like those people just disappeared. They just went, you know, on the back burner. But so uh, by March, uh, military forces, including Pinochet, uh, who was the deputy to Commander Pratt's, uh, became convinced that there was just there was no way a constitutional solution existed, and eventually that there was going to have to be a military intervention. Um, and Pinochet cites May 28th as the day that their planning for the coup began in earnest, which is my birthday. Oh, cool! So five <laughs> years to the day before I was born, Augusto Pinochet started plotting the coup of the yeah. Chilean government. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we celebrate on May 28th now. My birthday. Uh, <laughs> Pinochet's military junta. It's probably going to air after your birthday, huh? <laughs> yeah, a couple days after. Um, anyway, so um, prior to the actual coup that ended up happening, a small splinter group uh, attempted a coup in late July um, when about 100 soldiers with armored cars and tanks uh, drove into the city and surrounded La Moneda, the presidential palace, but Allende wasn't there, which, like, bad fucking planning, you guys. Like, I know there's no internet, but really? Like, yeah, not- you don't know anybody that knows his schedule? Yeah. But you're gonna try to take over the country with tanks? Yeah. Get a guy on the inside. Get a, yeah, get a fucking day planner or something, you guys. Like, He's the president. His schedule can't be that much of a secret. Yeah. Um, but again, and Allende goes on the radio and he does the same fucking thing, denouncing the, these guys as, as you know, bad actors, denouncing the, the, the coup, calling on the people to stand up against those who are trying to seize power, but also trying to word it in a way as to keep them from, like, splintering off and forming their own revolutionary military but also saying that like you know when people there there will be guns available for people who need guns when they it's just (sighs) yeah it's it's clear that it's like a fuse that he knows he has but he's afraid to light yeah because he could he could probably be like fuck it full communist revolution yeah and my it might actually work yeah it may very well have worked sorry i swear um, um, no, that's fine. Uh, but I'm not going to believe him anyway. But okay. um, <laughs> um, but he's clearly he's not ideologically committed enough. And it, like, I'm not trying to be judgmental about that. Like, that is a lot. It is a lot. It's a lot. It's a fucking <laughs> terrifying idea. Yeah. To like take up arms, f- uh, you know, against other people for any reason. Right. Uh, and especially for civilians and right. yeah so it's it's big and the bottom line is who the fuck knows how history would look on him if he had done that right you know i mean he would probably go down with you know he he wouldn't be the che guevara he'd be like you know uh diet uh castro Diet Castro. Basically. This episode sponsored by Diet Castro. <laughs> a cool, refreshing taste of Diet Castro Cola. When you need a revolution, but you kind of don't want to have to murder too many people, Diet, Diet Castro. Castro. Coke Sam. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I think that really is what it comes down to. Is like he He's obviously like had an ideological project of like democratic socialism or whatever you want to call it where it's like he's and now he's he's stuck between a rock and a hard place and the only way out is to pull the plug on like like full communist revolution yeah and apparently he doesn't do it um which like i mean looking at history like there's no there's no way to know that that wouldn't end with him dead too even right. if even if he got the country he wanted out of it he might have gotten right yeah i mean there, there's there's that. a very <laughs> a, a very substantial possibility that he that he would either yeah have have ended up dead uh because of his own revolution or at the very least have gone down in history uh as as a villain right the the historical precedent especially at that point there was not, i mean there there continues to not be although the 
the winds are changing with regards to uh, to certain communist and socialist figures throughout history. But I would say that right now in 2020, there's yeah, not I mean, a significant communist or socialist figure in world history that's universally positively regarded. No, well, I mean, I don't think there's any political figure. Right. But... Um, even overwhelmingly positively regarded. No, yeah, no, no. I mean, you you still have to be pretty pretty ideologically committed to left wing politics to even kind of find the good in these guys, yeah. because of you know the media treatment of them for the last hundred years, yeah. I guess. Yeah, it, it's one of the things that actually makes Iende a good um, a good subject for people who want to talk about how this how, how things like this could potentially work and and how and why they've gone wrong uh in the past because obviously the greater portion of or at least obvious to me the greater portion of what went wrong and what led to the failure of Allende's project was interference from the outside yes um and we will never know thanks to that interference whether it might whether it would have otherwise worked i'll go i'll go several steps further and say the greatest problem for every socialist or communist project that's ever been attempted has been interference from the outside agree but as opposed to when you look at like um cambodia or even the the ussr where like the starvation of their own people had a, was was to a huge extent um, them trying to like maintain appearances and yeah. you know shipping food out of the country or shipping it to the wrong places or just having like just colossally yeah but you're also you're also maintaining appearances because of interference from the outside why else would you maintain appearances yeah no I I, I and I'm not I'm not a tanky I'm not like Stalin is a mo- fucking monster <laughs> I'm not I'm not a Stalinist I'm not, you didn't bring it you didn't accidentally get a Stalinist <laughs> on your podcast I'm just saying that like you can say that about every like like radical left project yeah is that it was immediately pounced upon by the international bourgeoisie um I mean you're right but when I look at something especially like when you think when I think about something like Cambodia like it was going to that was going to happen regardless so they could have not tried to make themselves look good for the international press and whoever else was watching and just been like we're going to feed our fucking people yeah no i'm not you know that's 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 the kind of shit and it and again it's like uh hardcore uh ideological being like a hard hardcore ideologue no matter what the ideology is as it turns out doesn't work too good yeah well (laughs) we've been ruled by hardcore liberal economics ideologues for 50 years yeah and now we're all dying of the plague yeah it's good for unrelated reasons it's good i like it it's good anyway oh also uh the the spanish word for uh well basically translates as tank putsch (laughs) <laughs> um is tanketazo okay that's fun yeah 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 it's fun yeah okay so uh but right before the uh, so first of all at the end so the way that the tank put the tanketazo ends is that um pratt's pulls basically the the most big dick maneuver that i have ever heard of he just alone by himself with no snipers no backup or anything just a machine gun in one hand walks up to these this row of tanks and armored cars one by one and is like go home this is over now and they do (laughs) maybe they'd been there for a long time and they wanted to clock off i mean (laughs) um but and so the uh, Allende again Allende had made this like radio address uh, and the people because he was weird and ambiguous with his language did not uh, try to come to, to arm up and come to his rescue but they did go balls out seizing the means of production which Ooh. is very interesting so they take over hundreds of factories across the country over the next couple of weeks um, 
and they very quickly start organizing into paramilitary groups, patrolling neighborhoods, uh, getting into plashes, clashes with police over the following weeks. Um, and Allende's, so when the Tankatazo is put down, uh, Allende doesn't use the military, call on the military to put down these forces that have taken over factories and are now like patrolling neighborhoods, which the fact that he doesn't do that is seen as further evidence and further motivation for the people who want to do the revolution that like they, that he can't be trusted and that, you know, that he's going to do his own armed revolution at some point and that they just need to take him out. Um, so, and this, and it also, the fact that he, got on the radio and called people called on people to mobilize uh, against theoretically against the military even though that he was calling on them to like mobilize against these tank dudes uh that still damaged his relationship with the military so now he's like further on this island uh by himself where he's you know doesn't have a properly armed and motivated like citizenry or proletariat he doesn't have the full support of the military he doesn't have the full support of the radical left he just you know um he's just kind of a man without a country yeah almost literally um and then the other problem with this is that it gave the army a preview of what would happen if people did take up arms to try and defend him because the few people who did take to the streets and did arm up during the tank push ended up doing the exact same shit later on during the actual coup. So it was just a dry run for the military because they got because they're like out in force and they can see pe- they can see where people are going, like where there are you know where there are hiding spots and stuff, and, and they just basically go, oh okay, that's what they're gonna do when we do this. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was. You rough. hate to see it. You hate to see it. Um, one general after the coup said uh, that, uh, or is, yeah, he said that it had made it easy because all the pro Allende forces had come out that day, did the same thing in September that they had done in June, um, and so the resignation of Pratt's was basically the last domino that leads to the coup. Pratt's had to resign because of something known as the Alejandrina Cox incident. I'm sorry, what kind of Cox? (laughs) (laughs) So Alejandrina Cox was a, uh, an upper class woman. um, And since Pratt's was part of Allende's cabinet. And since the, the, uh, the bourgeoisie did not like Allende, he was subject to public ridicule if he was spotted out on the street. So what happened one day is that Pratt's was driving down the street and he saw what he thought was a car with two men in it. It turned out that it, the driver was a woman, this Alejandro Nicox, and then the passenger was, was a man. Um, and they were like harassing him on the street, calling him names and stuff. Um, and, uh, and Pratt's was basically like, you want to fucking pull over and talk about it? And they did. And Pratt's uh, pulled out his pistol and shot at the bumper of the car. So not a good move. He's like a YouTube guy. <laughs> right, right. Like not not a good move, but not anything near what they made it out to be. No. Uh, so the 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 opposition media, the right wing media, blew it up as like he had you know drawn a gun on this this woman and you know and tried to shoot her and uh, and all this stuff and it turned into this huge scandal. So and that was the last time the right wing media blew anything out of proportion. <laughs> uh, so in that this country or any other that had happened on the twenty seventh. The Tankatazo happened on the 29th by uh, of July. About a month later. Pratt's resigns and a couple of other high-ranking officials resign as well and like I said earlier Pinochet was the next in line of command after Pratt's which Allende didn't think was a problem because Pinochet had done a really good job he had played it really close to the vest so Allende still didn't see it coming Um, but so August 23rd Pinochet succeeds Pratt's as uh, the head of the military and basically the vice president. Um, 
the opposition within Congress had declared a constitutional crisis because there were still more like the uh, the the uh, protests and strikes that had started back in April had continued and grown worse and like the um, the truckers who had, had had been on strike the previous year came back to join like the coal miners and yeah the, just the the strikes were a mess so uh, and Allende went through like he he tried th- like three or four different cabinets from between uh, between the beginning of August and when he was when he finally died in September he reorganized his cabinet multiple times just like trying to get the shit in back back on order back in order um and he you know accused the ex- opposition of trying to uh to stage a coup at the, and and he did at this point think that you know that he he knew that he, you know you see the writing on the wall but i still don't think that he suspected pinochet yeah. um but uh yeah so september 11th 1973 an auspicious day has to be 9-11. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, the military executed their coordinated plan to take over the country. Uh, Allende committed suicide inside La Moneda. Pinochet was supposed to hand power back to the civilian okay, government. Okay, did he commit suicide or did he... He did legitimately commit okay. suicide. Um, there was a lot of... A lot of witnesses. Th- okay. No, no, no. There weren't a lot of witnesses, but every, like the, um, the all the forensic evidence con- okay. c- con- confirms it. Um, but, there was, there, but there was a lot of controversy around that question uh, of whether or not he I mean, had committed yeah, suicide. Yeah, there's a reason my first instinct was to be like, excuse me! <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he made a radio address. He, he was last seen holding uh, a machine gun. I think it was an AK-47. Uh, but yeah, he was like last, last seen holding his weapon, and he was found dead whenever they broke down the doors and you know made it into his office where he was. Yeah. Um, just a great picture of him, like... Wearing like a this like a cardigan sweater and holding an AK forty seven. That sucks, man. <laughs> it sucks. Dude, that's my new vibe. Don't kill yourself. No, I'm just gonna wear a cardigan <laughs> and carry an AK forty seven. That's fine. Just the 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 first two elements of that are fine. Oh, okay. It's the third element where I'm like, no. Okay. No, as long as we're as long as we're on the same page about cardigans yeah. and AK forty seven. No, gun Mister Rogers by all means. <laughs> Um, so yeah of course uh, Pinochet was supposed to immediately hand power back to the civilian government and uh, he did not do that Uh, several days later Prats went into exile in Argentina with his wife in 1974 he was assassinated by a car bomb under car bomb under orders from Pinochet uh, as part of Operation Condor which I'm gonna have to get into the whole of Operation Condor it's so lot it's so much just this story is so fucking much yeah. Uh, and I cut out a lot. I mean, we're at hour forty, um, and yeah, time's flying by. I got to say, uh, yeah. Um, but I mean, I I I cut I I edited this a, f- a fair bit because yeah. I yeah I had more, um, but yeah. So Pratt's assassinated. Um, Chile spent 17 years living under a brutal dictatorship supported by the United States, the CIA, Henry Kissinger, and every American president who passed through the Oval Office from 1973 to 1990, and um, including Democrats and Republicans, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, Although that's only one, I guess that's, that's one, one Democrat. Democrat yeah. yeah, but Carter, man, I'm so disappointed in Jimmy Carter. I know Carter sucks. Like the more you look into it, the more like, God, God damn it, man. Yeah, he's just like he was. He presided over the start of the neoliberal turn, and uh, yeah, it. Mm, anyway, that's yeah. a subject for a completely another show. Yeah, he's just a much better president. He's just a much better person. He's than, a better person. He's not a better president. president. Yeah, he's a yeah. better person than the president. He's just right as now. bad as every other president. He's a better person. Yeah, which that's that's not it's, nothing. It's almost like we shouldn't have presidents. Yeah, it's almost like that. Yeah. Well, that's that's the whole story. So, um, I guess feel drunk. I guess (laughs) isn't that the thesis of the show? That is the point of the show. (laughs) Um, No, I guess like, and I know, and I don't want you to launch into another two-hour exposition (laughs) dump, but like. 
how did Chile like liberalize after the the Pinochet years? I don't know actually, and that's I, okay. I would like to know. I would um, love to do a follow up on that. It was point. I know that it was a um, uh, like a transitional thing because it wasn't like because Pinochet was not overthrown. Yeah, it just took him seventeen fucking years to do the thing that he was supposed to do immediately after the coup, which was to make it a open market, which was to do the U.S. puppet state thing, basically. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> or not puppet state, but like I think it was more of a U.S. puppet state at the during the during the Pinochet junta than it is now i think yeah well i guess 17 years that basically makes it like after the fall of the soviet union we we were less worried about like having firewalls against communism in the global south so it was kind of like okay you can liberalize now well and, and we were less we were less inclined to tolerate the glaring human rights abuses because i mean Pinochet, you know this from the the fucking uh, hard right crowd that like to yeah, wear the helicopter you know, memes. Yeah, 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 the helicopter memes. Yeah. Um, and that's totally a thing that yep. Pinochet did. Just take people in helicopters and push them out. Yep. Um, yeah, there was a really interesting another one. Another one of the books that I read for this is called Salt in the Sand. Um, that's a, a a more a longer uh, look at Chile, the history of Chilean politics um, and she was the one who got in, got much more into um ha the fact that this whole like that the Pinochet revolution the uh, the 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 coup was not nearly as much of a crazy out of the ordinary thing to happen uh in in the greater picture of of Chilean politics and right. um and there's some really interesting stuff. And I actually might do just another episode on Chile, on earlier Chilean history. Yeah. Um, because there's some really interesting stuff in that Salt in the Sand book. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got three distinct periods of Chilean history. I mean, I think the Pinochet regime is just sort of like you can just crystallize that as like the brutality that followed, you know, their collapse into a fascist um, dictatorship. But like the thawing of that and then them returning to a market society and a, and a socially liberal society but also like yeah the years before uh, yeah. Allende is, is like you know especially if you're looking at this through a sort of wine tinged lens like like you said they've been growing wine there for goddamn ever yeah they I mean they like I said it goes back as far as the um whatever the first same same as all of south america basically the the first religious uh colonizers right. yeah missionaries, missionaries they have to they have to put in them, you know. yeah they have to put in grapevines um, for the sacrament and um, then and, and and you can break most of south america's wine growing history into um pre-western european influence uh you know pre like pre-modern western european influence and, and post uh, basically post phylloxera outbreak because everybody yeah. has that initial uh, input and it's mostly just garbage grape you know pice yeah, mission and grapes mission and, yeah, yeah. Um, and then and, and then with the phylloxera outbreak comes the influx of a lot more um, mostly different, uh, yeah. mostly French but also other European varietals and um, you know there's some cool still cool stuff in Argentina I actually um, really want to I, I want to do an Argentina story just as an excuse to um, drink a bottle of this Nebbiolo that we've got from a Ooh. from our Argentine wine this the same one that makes that uh, that white blend um, Vinalicia yeah they make that that white uh, Riesling and, and Albarino blend uh, and they also make a uh, single vineyard Nebbiolo that's bananas it's super cool well if you want to do a thing about how many Nazis hid in Argentina <laughs> You know what's <laughs> and, so you, and you need a left-wing paranoiac to come on the show. <laughs> I was looking. You for know a guy for that <laughs> because because I don't want to spend a whole crap load of money on uh, on books or Kindle books to to do this podcast. I was looking for what the library had on uh, on ebook on Argentina, just in gen just any kind of Argentine history. And we go and you say not much. One of them is called the Nazi Hunters. 
<laughs> wonderful yeah yeah it's super good and cool uh boy yeah. um i guess my only I, and maybe i've already answered this question by with you saying it's out of the scope of this but i was gonna ask like what historical factors in what we just talked about do you think like way on the like terroir of, or whatever you want to call it like the social terroir of winemaking in uh Chilean wine these days well so we didn't really we didn't get that much into uh land redistribution um but it was something that 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 occurred leading up to Allende and and partially involved Allende um but as with you know so many uh colonial locations uh the first people to get there just went this is all mine yeah oh this is mine that's how you do colonialism from from that's that how, that's side how you to do that settler side. colonialism, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that happened under uh, Frey and continued under uh, Allende was the redistribution of, of those land parcels. So it was, I think it's something like 200, I want to say 200 acres, but I might be wrong. Um, but it's like a decent size. Uh, and any anybody who owned a land parcel bigger than that, they had to, you know, cut it up, and you got to keep like this is the maximum amount that one person could keep, and they broke broke it down for uh, and gave it to like, uh, basically smaller farmers, you know, right. smaller farms. Um, and so to to me that within the context of the wine industry, um, that gives the potential for more people if they want to be growing wine grapes to be growing different varieties and to be making more interesting stuff because you know one of the other things that you and I have obviously seen. Uh, in selling Chilean wine is that the first thing that hits the market, and this happens a lot of times whenever we see like a new plate and wine from a new place coming into the U S market, it's the cheap stuff that comes in. Yeah. First. I would say that's just any developing market Yeah, or um, any developing export market. Is, yeah. 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 Like that's the first p- thing that people are ex- excited about. Um, and you know, and in the case of Chile, it's like, it is super exciting to me because uh, especially in the case of like Pinot Noir, like Casa Bosque, the winery that we're drinking, like they make some really good Pinot Noir um, and Pinot Noir is difficult. It's hard to find good places to grow Pinot Noir and Chile with that, that, you know, diversity of, of microclimates makes for a fantastic uh, amount of opportunity to grow uh, a lot of, not, not just to grow Pinot Noir well, but even to grow multiple different styles of, uh, of Pinot Noir. Yeah. Even though they do have a different uh, subsoil than um, someplace like Burgundy, um, where you've got like the um, the marine limestone, or in like the Willamette Valley, where you've got the um, the you know the results of the the Missoula floods that uh, that wipe off the topsoil and leave those basically three primary soil what types. A red jewelry clay and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, and in Chile, the um, it's it's the the collision of two different uh, tectonic plates that um that forms the the valleys of chile so it's it's very ancient soil so it's i guess more similar to like the side like the um uh the uh the mayacamas um but like the the napa side of the mayacamas obviously you don't grow pinot noir there and even the the sonoma side you know it's southern sonoma so you don't not much of that but that's yeah the same thing with mayacamas is you know the formation of of tectonic plate uh collision um, so there's uh, very very ancient soil with like some like uh, marine influence, and there's the the like the the soil in Casablanca Valley where Casa del Bosque is located is uh, like 150 million year old uh, decomposing granite um, under like salt and or silt and clay topsoil. Um, that was a very long answer to your question. Yeah, no, and I, I guess I'm going to redirect a little bit. <laughs> you said, so you, you said like the, the sort of parceling out of land under Allende, um, breaking it up into, into smaller and smaller ownership groups um, is a factor, which I'm sure. I, th- I would think. I would imagine. what what. Unfortunately, nobody has written, a, maybe that's what I need to do, is actually write a definitive volume on the intersection of, of Chilean political history and Chilean wine growing. We could probably solve it on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> probably be a bestseller. <laughs> um, no, I mean, like, the conventional wisdom I have on Chile is that, like, most of the land is owned by large holding groups, like, you know, sort of international capital. And that, oh, and not to bash the wine we're drinking right now, which right. is great, but, like, a lot of the wine that I'm used to from Chile um, 
you know, you talked about the cheap stuff coming into the, the import market. Um, like the number one characteristic you learn to pick out right away is, is a vegetal, like over pyrazine characteristic in right. both the whites and the reds because they're, it's, it's grown industrially, um, you know. And and I'm not saying that I've had some very I've had some very incredible wine from Chile as well from like small landowners that know how to like actually farm for their for their microclimate like we talked about. Well, and like this Carmenere is a great example because yes. like um, that this, this know, is maybe the best Carmenere I've ever had like, because most Carmenere is just I don't want green beans in my wine. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's stinky and weird. Yeah. Um. But yeah, bad underripe uh, like over pyrazine Carmenere and so but there's a couple of factors that play into that. One, you're absolutely right, is like the scale. And, and I honestly, I don't, I, I know that there are some small growers um, and there are old vine parcels within Chile that are just unknown to the U.S. market. Um, sure. Because that's another factor is just developing an inter- international market for higher end wines. Right. It starts with the industrialized bullshit. Yeah. And then you work up to the kind of stuff that you sell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, these guys are the only winery in Chile that we import. Um, the winery is just under 200 acres, just over 200 acres. Um, so it's, you know, it's a decent size, but it's not factory size. It's still like an appropriate size for um, for, for boutique winemaking. Um, and they do focus on uh, on quality. They have more land than they need, which is kind of the ideal situation so they can sell fruit off and just keep like their, their, their best fruit. But a couple of things that I've learned. One, again, going back to Carmenier, obviously, Getting Carmenere properly ripe and having it not be a stinky pyrazine garbage mess is challenging. And two, as you already know, and listeners may or may not know, uh, within the history of Chilean winemaking, there was a time when they did not know what Carmenere was. Carmenere was considered right. to be lost. And it was a time when we were alive. Yeah. 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 Like, it's not a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, this is literally, yeah. like, within the transition, during the time period that we're talking about since the early 90s, when Chile has rejoined the modern world of the modern wine industry, is when this was figured out. And it was thought that, that uh, all of this Carmenere was Merlot, and when you farm Carmenere like you think it's Merlot, it comes out really shitty. Car- Carmenere is shitty Merlot. Yeah. I'm putting that on a t-shirt. <laughs> um, also, a lot of times Merlot is shitty Merlot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the other thing that can lead to um, the idea of associating like heavy pyrazine character with Chilean wines in general is that Sauvignon Blanc happens to do very well in Chile. Sauvignon Blanc. I know, but I drink a lot of Sauvignon Blanc from all over the world. I'm going to push back on you on that one. And same thing on Cabernet Sauvignon before you start on that. No, I wasn't going to start on that, <laughs> but I was going to tell you something that I don't know if you know about uh, Chilean Sauvignon Blanc. Um, that apparently, uh, so have you, you've heard of uh, Sauvignon Vert? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so also known as uh, Sauvignones, also known as Friulano. I found out. Hang on. <laughs> that is new information for me. I know. I found this out from the wine, the guy who makes this wine. And Sauvignon Vert is... Tokai. Friolano. I really want to run through your wall like the Kool-Aid man right now. <laughs> yeah, I... So, I found this out from the winemaker that not only... It's so funny. We just did like a two-hour story about like (laughs) (laughs) just betrayal and and political revolution and counter-revolution and i'm just like are you fucking kidding me friulano (laughs) um we suck (laughs) this is gonna be very entertaining for (laughs) fours of people um but so apparently a lot of what is planted in Chile and what is harvested and bottled and sold as Sauvignon Blanc is, in fact, Sauvignones. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't, I can't speak to exactly what that does to the character of the wine, but I think between that, the fact that it's not truly Sauvignon Blanc, and the fact that uh, a lot of the stuff that we see the cheap stuff you know the mass marketed mass produced stuff uh is mass marketed and uh well i think i think it goes back to what you were just saying about if you farm carmenere's merlot yeah (laughs) if you farm friolano sauvignon blanc yeah 
It's not going to probably going to suck not shit. Not going to work out good. Um, but like I compare it to because I I have to have like I, I have to address these things as a you know as a salesman selling these wines, um, like the Sauvignon Blancs from Casa del Bosque, they've got a substantial amount of, of piercing character to them, but it's in a way that I find charming. Well, yeah, I mean, the Sauvignon Blanc should have, like, the ones that, like, the California ones that just have it ripened out completely. I'm like, okay, why am I drinking Why this? is this Sauvignon Blanc? Why don't just drink a Pinot Grigio? Yeah. At this point. Yeah. Um, it's like you wanted Pinot Grigio and Chardonnay, but you couldn't decide. Right. So you did this to Sauvignon Blanc. Right. But on the other hand, I don't want it to taste like the juice from a can of jalapenos. Yeah. Um, but I, when I there's... feel like... Like when there that that's the th- like when there's an amount of that, it's just it's this it's this really subtle thing because I get I get a little bit of like jalapeno character uh, from the Sauvignon Blancs from these guys, but it always the the descriptor that I always use the thing that always makes me think of is if candied jalapeno exists or existed, that's what it would taste like and I'm smell sure like. That does exist? I would right? think it does. I've just yeah. never seen it, so I don't. But yeah, just yeah, just jalapeno peppers packed in sugar. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. Yeah, and like yeah. the and that's like a charming character. That. It's yeah. like this, this, this bright kind of peppery you sanded thing. all the edges off of jalapenos. Yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah. I can dig that. Yeah, so I I dig that. That's I, I'm I'm on a mission, and it, probably because I'm biased because I have to sell Chilean wines, and I mean I get to sell Chilean wines, but like I I have to I have to encounter that that bias that argument all yeah. the time. That, no, the, like, you're definitely knocking my arguments down very effectively i mean it's pyrazine is a part of the it's a part of the grape your like, mom's part of the grape <laughs> i'm sorry your mom's nice <laughs> but like it should be there like pyrazine it should sure it should, but it makes it, it, it should, harder it should serve a a, a structural it's it a it serves a structural component to the overall i'll take back profile. should i'll take back should i'll say should, it, it can it can yeah, yeah it can be an acceptable yes. and and, in, and well and integrated and i agree with that but again going back to it if i sniff a 10 to 20 dollar retail cab and it just reeks of fucking pyrazine I'm, yeah no it's gross i'm also but i'm also going to say that's chile oh yeah so do, like, do you want like why why i guess is what i'm asking what why do you want to let it be expressed no like why 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 oh why, why is just that, why is that a thing why is that a chilean thing specifically like why why i don't have an answer to that okay yeah no i'm like i don't i don't think yeah, that it and is, i know I'm, I'm pushing you on this yeah stuff, I, I don't think that it is specifically a terroir thing uh, one guess that I'll just pull out of my ass really quickly is that the uh, proliferation, the, the, the amount of Carmenere that exists in the country, and Carmenere being one of the two most pyrazine-heavy of the Bordeaux family, um, people who are accustomed to drinking Carmenere are more uh, are, are going to notice mm. pyrazine less in their Cabernet. So you think it might be like a domestic taste? Could be. Like, could be part of it just like how there's probably an equivalent show to this in italy where they're like why do americans use so much fucking oak <laughs> <laughs> or literally anywhere else in the world i mean i guess ex- except spain and australia yeah my first thing was spain i was like nope actually no <laughs> <laughs> definitely the french and italians though yeah but not in bordeaux or, or the germans my god oh yeah uh, yeah germans yeah. would not be yeah um, anyway, yeah, no, yeah, you, yeah, you might be right about that. It might just be domestic taste. Yeah. You're like, no, we, we like, like our wine's green as shit. Well, and I mean, may, it may not even be a conscious like as much as just that's like it, it realigns right. the palate just enough uh, to where there, because it, I mean, the amount of pyrazine that I get from like well-made cabernet, like you know, the the cabernet from Casas del Bosque and other um, uh, other solidly made Chilean Cabernets because you're right there is more it's more common in in Chilean Cabernet than I would say it's with far more pronounced Cabernet. than almost any other Cabernet but the the flip side is what are you what are you getting instead of that because it's personality to me like it, it's and, and so what are you getting well in, and in like full disclosure I California don't, I don't really like Cabernet Sauvignon that much yeah I don't I don't think there's a lot of wine, ner- not a lot of wine nerds do probably. Um, 
I mean, I don't like. I don't get that excited about cheap Cabernet Sauvignon. And since I mean, since we or, opened the second bottle, yeah. <laughs> uh, this I get m- much more excited about than Cabernet. Even oh, these guys, yeah. Cabernet. Yeah. So, yeah. listeners, we just opened a bottle of Syrah, which if you haven't checked out. Syrah or just any like off the beaten path varietals out of Chile, you really owe yourself, owe it to yourself to do it. Um, because you know, we, when we think about like as American consumers, when we think about Chilean wines, we have been exposed to the stuff that we've been talking about basically Carmenere, yeah, Cabernet, Cabernet, Pinot Noir to a slightly lesser extent. Um, and and, and Pinot Noir, honestly, you should seek out more Chilean Pinot Noir. Ch- Chile does a really good job with inexpensive Pinot Noir. Definitely a better. I, if you give me ten to fifteen dollars and tell me I have to go get a bottle of Pinot Noir, I would much rather spend that money on a bottle of Chilean Pinot Noir than a bottle of American Pinot if Noir I had at to that guess, price point. If it was like pick a bottle you've never had before, you have ten to fifteen dollars, and it has to be better than somebody else's bottle they've never had before. I would definitely bet on Chile. For Pinot Noir. Yeah, for Pinot Noir. I was going to say, because if it was 10 to $15 and it's anywhere in the world, I'm going to the Southern Rhone. But for Pinot Noir. But for Pinot Noir, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this... you're, not, you're not getting that. Right. <laughs> Go steer to name Pinot Noir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, God. Uh, Non-Burgundian French Pinot Noir. I just don't want to. Please stop doing that, you know, everybody. Just... Burgundy's got it, you guys. I mean, Burgundy doesn't have it in the sense of making it affordable. Or, or making enough of it, but they're definitely making it the best. Yeah. Um, anyway, we just got real up our own asses. <laughs> but, oh, no, I mean, like, I, I assumed you wanted this to be a wine podcast yeah. also, so I was trying to tie it together. Oh, yeah. No, I'm just trying, I'm, I'm trying to think of where I'm going to, because this has to be two episodes at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't do this to people. No. No one... No, <laughs> No one's going to let you do this to them. No, um, uh, but no, I think this is. I yeah. think this is good. Actually, I think like I love this Syrah, and and again, back to the the many, 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 many different microclimates of Chile. Right. Every goddamn varietal that you can think of should be possible there. Right. Um, well, and I've had some Sauvignon Blanc from Chile that absolutely rocked my cock. Oh yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. And, well, you've P- had and the, Pinot Noir too. You've had the like the top tier Sauvignon Blanc from these guys, right? I don't. It's been. I think you tried it a couple of years ago. Anyway, anyway, um, um, I'll get you some. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's fantastic Pinot Noir. There's like there's cool old vine parcels of like Grenache and Carignan and. Uh, all kinds of funky stuff. The the Cabernet, so these guys, since they're in Casablanca Valley, which is a cooler area, so the Syrah is a state, they're all their Sauvignon Blanc, their Pinot Noir Chardonnay is all a state, um, but it's too cold there for them to grow Carmenere or Cabernet, so they buy fruit for um, their, for those two varietals from uh, the, mostly like Maipo and Rappel uh, Valleys. Uh, and their... Uh, their top tier Cabernet, which you have had, yeah. um, the the Grand Bosque, it comes from a, 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 a like a the, the highest elevation parcel of Maipo, the Alto Maipo, um, and the vines are like sixty plus years old. Um, I was having a hard time t- figuring out exactly because I mean they they pull it from several different uh, vineyard sites, but the um, the I, I think I've told you about the the Valdivia earthquake. That was another thing that I looked into while researching this, because <laughs> it did it occur. It was in 1960, um, so it kind of it, it coincides. I don't know yeah. if it had any actual impl- in, impact on the political climate in Chile, but it's the 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 biggest earthquake in recorded history. Oh shit! Yeah, damn. Uh, and it's further south. Um, it's it's down uh, below. It's it's further south from like um, where most of the wine growing is um, in Valdivia. Um, but yeah, nine point four to nine point six on the Richter scale. Um, and that was one of the things I can't remember where where I was reading, but uh, that's like some of the oldest um, vineyard sites uh, trace back to. That was, they just like that's where they were that's that's how they remember is whether it was planted before or after that oh gotcha um yeah sweet well i think uh i think that'll do it right yeah that's that's probably pretty good okay 
uh, listeners, you can catch me and Jack talking about Star Trek <laughs> on our Star Trek podcast called Star Trek Sucks. Thank you for joining us. And uh, yeah, thanks. I don't have anything to plug. Okay. <laughs> thanks for offering, though. <laughs> Are you saying I'm bad at this? Cause I'm I saying you're new at it. I don't know if I could handle that. No, you're very... Actually, no cap. This is very fun. Um, you should keep doing this. I, I, I really had a good time. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a really fun concept. I wish I could put these together faster. Yeah. Um, but you have a full-time job. I have a full-time... That isn't this. I have a full-time <laughs> job, and I have another podcast that I do with this jackass where we watch Star Trek. Yeah, that takes up to twos of hours a week i mean i have to edit them too that's true thank you for all you do on <laughs> editing that by the way thank you listeners <laughs> Goodbye. have a lovely evening goodbye or day whatever whenever you're listening goodbye.